All right, so when I had been dating for a few months, the girl who would later become my wife, and felt like things were going pretty well, decided to make a big move. And I told her that I was planning a trip for us. She said, great, where are we going? I said, get this, we are going to go all the way across country to hang out with my friends at my old college roommate's wedding. Doesn't that sound fantastic? Now, looking back, I should have seen the lack of excitement in her face as a uh, warning sign, but I was a clueless single dude, so I just forged ahead. But more than that, I just kept on making things worse. Because I booked us a red-eye flight, because it was cheaper, and chicks dig guys that like to save money, right? And I snagged that coveted back row seat back there by the bathrooms, just to make sure that there was no sleeping going on whatsoever. So when we finally arrived in the morning, nap time? Nah, time for a hike. Go to the lovely hills of North Carolina. I don't know why I did that, but that's what we did. And then we finally met up with my friend who was getting married. Uh, this is at Duke University. And he said, you want a tour of Duke University? I said, you bet I do. So we had a tour of Duke. And then when we were just exhausted for the evening, we went to a five-hour rehearsal dinner till late at night, which is always a nice touch after a uh, red-eye flight. Now, we weren't married, so we slept in this crowded house, and she slept in this room with a bunch of girls she doesn't even know. And that's, that's just day one. Day, day two goes downhill from there. Because the next morning, I drop her off with the uh, bride-to-be and her, like, 13 Russian sisters and, like, eight Russian grandmothers. And I don't understand how one person can have so many grandmothers, but she did. And so my girlfriend is hanging out with the grandmas, making by hand wedding decorations all day long. Well, what I do? I went out with my friends and had fun. So I could tell from the look I got about eight hours later when I picked her up that that coveted Boyfriend of the Year award was no longer in play for me. But in one of the greatest mysteries of the universe, from my perspective, for some reason, we'll never know why, she did not break up with me after that painful weekend. But when she said to me the next month that she wanted to spend a weekend with her family, what did I say? Well, of course. Of course I will, right? I owe you. You sacrificed so much for me. It's only fitting that we do this. This is a principle that we all live by. Someone sacrifices for you, you're in their debt. And the more they sacrifice for you, the more in debt to them that you are. Now, enter the Christian, the beneficiary of the single greatest sacrifice in history, the death of Christ on the cross for our sins, and we can never pay God back for that. Salvation, it's, it's a gift from God. It's not earned by us. It's not by works. But having received such a wonderful gift, what I want to focus on tonight is what our response to that gift should be. And God tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.15, I got the verse behind me, it says he died for all. He died for us. That's amazing sacrifice. So what should we do with that? That those who live might what? No longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We need to start living for God. Our response to the ultimate sacrifice Christ made for us is to live a life of willing sacrifice to our Savior. And the more you understand the greatness of this sacrifice, the more you understand how costly it was, and the more you understand how much you're a sinner and how much you're in need of that sacrifice, the more of a desire you are going to have to follow God in your life. 
So to see that, let's turn to our passage tonight in Luke chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 13 through 25. And as you're turning there, let's review the points from Pastor Mike's message this weekend from the very same passage. He had three points. He said, first, we need to ponder the perfection of Christ. Christ is the perfect sacrifice given to us. Second, he said, we need to see our own sinfulness. We're all in desperate need of a savior. And then third, you've got to cling to that great exchange. Remember Barabbas, like him, we have been set free and Christ has died in our place. In very few other places in scripture is this contrast of the perfection of Christ and our own, our own sinfulness so clearly seen than in Luke 23. Let's pick it up if you've turned there to Luke 23, starting in verse 13. It says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man, who? Christ, as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death had been done by him. And Pilate at this point, he had tried multiple times to free Jesus. And here he's gathering the people and the priests and the Pharisees together, and he's designed this as a, as a final sentencing of Jesus. And he delivers this verdict in verse 14. You see it at the end there. He says, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. And you can just see the headlines now in tomorrow's Jerusalem Times. Not guilty. That was his verdict. It goes further, verse 15, nothing deserving death has been done by him. He was completely innocent. Jesus was perfect in every way. And you see, you're never going to appreciate the cross until you truly begin to understand this. Point number one on your outline, you need to understand Christ's innocence. Understand Christ's innocence. Because Christ isn't, he's just not some good teacher. He's not just some good moral guy. He was 100% perfect. He was 100% innocent and perfect. Perfect's a word that we just casually throw around a lot these days. Say, oh, that quarterback throws a, throws a perfect spiral. Or, or, or the, this dress would be perfect for the party. Or that, that Mexican flame grilled chicken from El Pollo Loco is just perfect. It's just perfect. <laughs> but none of these, unfortunately, are, are truly perfect. But Christ is perfect. Look at 1 Peter 2.22. It says, he committed not very many sins. That's not what he says. He committed no sin, not a single one, and neither was deceit found in his mouth. Christ, the God-man, he left heaven and he came to earth and he lived a perfect life. Just think about your life. Think about every time you made a wrong decision. Think about every time that you messed up. Christ, in that very same situation, he made the right call. He was never the unruly child. He was never the rebellious teenager. He never lied. He never stole. He never coveted. He never got unjustly angry. He was 100% innocent, and he lived a 100% perfect life. And as a perfect person, he was willing to be condemned and to die. Do you understand this? Do you understand how unfair and how unjust this is? The Christ, the perfect son of God, would subject himself to death, even death on a cross? You grasp the injustice of this? The perfect son of God, beaten, mocked, crucified for you. It, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. 
I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about a story my wife told me a, a little while ago. She was, having, uh, she was having dinner with friends, with a friend of hers. And they're sitting at a table, a little candle burning on the table. And her friend, I don't know, she bent down to pick something up out of her purse or something, and uh, her knee just kind of knocked the table. And it just knocked the candle over and spilled wax all over the table and all over my wife's pants. And she's just trying to clean this mess up. And, my, and her friend pops back up, thinking my wife has knocked this over. And she's, oh, it's okay. And my wife's in shock. She doesn't know what to say. And, and her friend goes, oh, don't worry about it. It's an old table. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Now, my wife doesn't do what many of us would have done. Uh, no, you did this. Now, she's too nice for that. And she just sat there feeling unjustly accused. It felt wrong. Why? Because she didn't do it. And there was injustice there. Okay, well, that's a small thing. Well, let, let's raise it up a few levels. Think back. Imagine it's your, your wedding day. Think back to that blissful day, however many years ago it was. And if your wife, think of yourself in your dressing room, or a husband, think of your wife in her dressing room on her wedding day, and you're wearing that wedding dress, you know, the one that you took months for you to find. I spent thousands of dollars on this thing, the perfect wedding dress. And the guests are all arriving, and the music's beginning to play, and you're just about ready to go out there and walk down the aisle in that perfect wedding dress of yours. And then I come sneaking in, and I've got this, I don't know, this big old bucket of mud, and I walk up and I throw it all over you. You are just drenched in mud. And I say, ha-ha, and I go take enough running. I don't know why. I don't know why I did it. (laughs) But think about that, that perfect, innocent bride. Dress is ruined, and the day is ruined. Think about how mad you are. Think about the injustice of that one action right there. And then multiply that like a million times. And you still don't approach what Christ was experiencing here. I mean, there's no more absolute injustice in the history of the world than what's going in our, on in our passage here tonight. The perfect son of God, the very one that created the heavens and the earth, he was condemned to die as a criminal? Oh, this is not some small little favor that God's done for you. No, Christ was of infinite value. And he suffered infinite injustice. Why? For you. Christ prayed that infinite life. And the more you understand that, the more you're going to appreciate what it is that God's done for you. Understand Christ's innocence. But there's more to this passage that will deepen our appreciation for Christ's sacrifice. Let's find it back in our passage where we left off, I believe it was verse 16. Luke 23, 16. Pilate says, I will therefore punish and release him. But they, the Pharisees and the priests and the crowd, they all cried out together, away with this man, away with him. Release to us Barabbas. This is a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. But Pilate addressed them one more time, because why? He wanted to release Jesus. So he's trying to free him, but they kept on shouting, crucify, crucify him. And the third time he said to him, well, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. To make you happy, I'll punish, but they're not going to release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. Now, remember how this whole trial started. Just, you can scroll up just a couple verses. Look at just chapter 23 still, but verses 1 and 2, when this whole scene started. Verse 1 says, The whole company of them arose and brought, before, brought him, Jesus, before Pilate, and they began to accuse him. The Pharisees did, accusing Jesus of three things 
said, we found this man first misleading our nation. Second, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And third, saying that he himself, he himself is Christ, a king. They're basically saying, hey, we found this guy. He's a bad guy. And we're bringing him here because we just want justice. That's how, that's how they started. But what happened? Pilate threw that case out. So what did they do? They stirred up the crowd to release Barabbas. Who was Barabbas? He was an insurrectionist, which ironically is the exact same charge that they were bringing against Jesus. But that didn't matter to them. No, they just wanted Jesus killed. They were envious of him, as Mark 15 tells us. They hated him. You see, the Pharisees, they built up this facade of wanting justice. But that was really just an excuse. That was just a cover-up. And what God's doing here, he's peeling that back and he's exposing them for the jealous, hateful people that they really are. And God does the same thing to us. He peels back our excuses, gets to the heart of our sin. And what we need to do is we need to respond in a way that the Pharisees never did. Point number two on your outline, you need to realize your guilt. Realize your guilt because we're all guilty. And like the Pharisees, we're good at putting up those layers of excuses, covering up sin over here, blaming someone else over there. It's never our fault. No, no, the problem's always with somebody else. It's like trying to talk to my dad on the cell phone. I don't know if you know anybody like this, but whenever there's like a bad connection, the problem's always with somebody else's phone. It's never, never with his phone. I'll call him up. I'll say, hey, dad, it's Ryan. He's, oh, I can't hear you. Where are you at? I'm like, um, I'm in the, I'm in the middle of my living room. Where are you? It's like, oh, I'm on the top of Mount Everest, but I can't hear you. I think there's something wrong with your phone. I'm like, dad, dad, it's not, forget it. But it's not just my dad and the phone. It's, it's human nature because we don't want to look at ourselves. We don't want to see that, oh, maybe the problem's with us. That's why it's so important that you take time to diagnose yourself, realize your own guilt, deal with your own sin. Because you see, this is something the Pharisees never did. They never even considered that they might be in the wrong. Kept on plunging down that same terrible path, even though at every step in the way, God's putting up barriers. A Pilate trying to free Jesus. You got Herod doing the same thing. Now Pilate's on the scene trying to release Barabbas instead of Christ. But the Pharisees were undeterred. Even, even when their charade of false charges was long gone, even when they were, all that they were left with was their hatred and their anger, their cry was unchanged, crucify him. Crucify him. And really, at our core, we're no different. We put on a facade of being righteous, but we deny Christ just like the Pharisees did every single day in our lives. And our sin separates us from God, just like their sin separated them from God. And you're never going to appreciate the grace of God in providing you a Savior. You're never going to have the joy of getting up each day knowing that you've been saved and redeemed by a loving God until you spend some time realizing your own guilt. Until you spend some time peeling back those layers of excuses and taking a look at your life and seeing your sin for what it is and confessing that to God. I got in a... Uh, argument with this guy at work a little bit ago. We're in a meeting. We'll call him uh, Bob to protect the innocent here. Um, not that you know him anyways. I don't know why. But it's Bob, anyways, that's what, that's what I'm going with. Um, and the meeting just ended, right? And, and we just walked out. I didn't talk to Bob. I was annoyed at him. I, I just walked out. And I guess I went home and I told my wife about this. I know this because when I came home from work the next day, she greets me right as I walk in the door. And she's like, well, did you talk to Bob? 
I said, uh, yeah, yeah, I think I did. She said, well, what happened? I said, what do you mean? It's like, well, you got in a fight? Did you talk about it? Um, no, I don't think we did. She said, well, what did you do? Uh, we just, I don't know, we just kind of pretended like it never happened, right? Well, guys, that's what we do. <laughs> but it got me thinking. You know, I never took the time to prayerfully look back on that situation. I started peeling back my own excuses and realized there was, there was pride there. There was anger there. It was unconfessed before God. There was forgiveness that was needed. I needed to go and seek that forgiveness from that other person. That's why this is so important. You've got to look critically at yourself peeling back your layers of excuses, confessing your sin to God. That's got to be a regular part of your prayer time. When you come before God each day, just spend some time looking back at your day and say, God, where did I go wrong? Where did I fall short of your commands? Where am I making excuses, uncovering your sinful motives and confessing that to God? That means in your prayer time, you need to be coming before God, asking, yourself, asking him questions like, where have I been prideful and selfish in my marriage? Have I been the one causing the fights with my spouse? Have I been harsh to my wife? Have I been disrespectful to my husband? Maybe, have I been angry dealing with the kids? Here's a good one. Have I been fearful? Maybe I haven't spoken up for you at work like I should. You need to make this a regular part of your prayer time each day, realizing your guilt, confessing it before God. Because if you do this, not only are you going to have a healthier relationship with God each day, but you're going to have a far better understanding of your need for a Savior. And you're going to be far more grateful for the sacrifice that he's made for you. But there's one last thing I want to uh, note in our passage. So let's look back at the passage one more time. We're going to see it in the last three verses that we're going to look at tonight in Luke chapter 23. Let's pick it up at the beginning of, uh, let's go back to the beginning of verse 23. It says, but they, you know, the Pharisees, were urgent in the crowd, demanding with loud cries that he, Jesus, should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. Who's that? It's Barabbas, for whom they'd asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, the interesting thing when you read these couple of verses is that there's a lot of, there's a number of different people in these verses that seem like they're in control. Now, you got Pilate. He's the one deciding that Jesus was innocent. And we've got him in verse 24. What does it say? He says that he decided that their demand should be granted. Who's The Pharisees. Well, maybe it's them. Maybe they're the ones running the show here. End of verse 23, they were the ones that had the urgent cries that, that their voices prevailed. Or even at the end of verse 25, Pilate delivers Jesus over to their will. Maybe the Pharisees are the ones running this, this whole deal. But we know better, don't we? We know. This whole, this whole thing was orchestrated by God. It was God's plan that Christ would die for our sins. It was God's plan that Jesus was willingly following. And you see the knowledge that Christ was in control through this whole thing, the knowledge that he wasn't just some sort of hapless victim here, but he did it of his own accord, makes us appreciate that sacrifice. I think that much more. And that's point number three on your outline. You need to appreciate Christ's willing payment because he willingly laid down his life for you. All part of the plan Look at Acts 2.23. I put it on the screen there. 
says, this Jesus delivered up, not by chance, not a victim of circumstance, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This is all part of God's plan. Yeah, you crucified him. You killed him by the hands of lawless men. That seems bad, but it was all part of God's plan. The Pharisees didn't force him into this. Pilate's not the one calling the shots. Christ is willingly laying down his life for us. And if Christ willingly laid down his life for you, what should your response be? That's a valid question. What should your response be to that? Two things. If you are not a Christian here tonight, your response is to repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. You're a guilty sinner. Your sin has separated you from God. And an innocent Christ laid down his life for you. He was condemned in your place. You need to repent of your sins. You need to put your trust in Christ and you need to entrust your life to him. If you haven't done this, if you're sitting here tonight separated from God, let me implore you, don't let this opportunity go by. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to me. Talk to, to, to my wife. Talk to someone and we'll get your life right with God. But if you're sitting here tonight and you are a Christian, there's a response that you need as well. If you've already repented and trusted in Christ, what further response do you need? Well, let me go to what I hope is a familiar verse to many of you. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Right? This amazing sacrifice we've been talking about all night long. So what's our response? We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Since Christ sacrificed for you, you need to respond with the life of obedient sacrifice to him. I think I got a little fancy error there. Subpoint to number three, you need to appreciate Christ's willing payment by responding sacrificially. Sacrificially in your life. That means you need to take your marriage, you need to take your life, and you've got to turn that over to God, who is willing to sacrifice so much for you. Whatever God asks of you in this life, whatever sacrifice he calls you to make, you need to freely make it. Why? out of immense gratitude for what it is that he has done and sacrificed for you. It's like if you had a, if you had a child, so you had a child that was, that was dying, and maybe your child needed, I don't know, needed a kidney or something, and you, you couldn't find a donor, and your child was going to die, and that was it. You're in the hospital, and you're saying your last goodbyes. And at the last minute, I step in, and I say, well, hey, I'm a match. I'll give my kidney. And I do. And your child lives. And you're overjoyed. You get that life back. And then let's just say a couple weeks later, we're I don't know, hanging out in Costco. I say, hey, can I have a buck fifty for a, for a hot dog and a, and a Coke? And you say to me, sorry, dude. I, I, no, I, I just can't afford that. Sorry. That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Of course you'd give me my hot dog. Because right? you understood how much I sacrificed for you. You'd be more than happy to respond in whatever way that you could. Yeah, we sit here tonight having received the most amazing gift in the history of the world. When Christ asks us to make some sort of little sacrifice for him, and you say, oh, I'm sorry, Christ. No, I don't have time. Do you see what I got going on over here? I can't possibly give up that. I can't possibly go over there. Do you understand how irrational that is? What a mockery you're making of his sacrifice for you on the cross? You should not be letting a day go by in your life without sacrificing to God. 
out of amazement that he would save a sinner like you. Your purpose, your life's purpose now is to live for him. Your life's purpose is to sacrifice for him. A day spent in this life, you let a day go by that you didn't in some way sacrifice for God. Let a day go by, that's a wasted day. It's a wasted day. You have got to sacrifice for God. That is your purpose. Okay, well, what does God want me to sacrifice? Everything. He wants you to be willing to sacrifice everything. And in the interest of time, I narrowed it down. I'm going to give you three little points. Three um, just examples, I think common examples of things, categories that God might call you to sacrifice. Starting with the first one, you might need to sacrifice your reputation. Why? Because you live in a world that with each passing day is more and more hostile to God. A world that doesn't have a whole lot of patience for what God has to say about marriage or gender or any other social issue. And if you try to stand up for God, people are going to mock you. You're going to mock your traditional Christian values. You might lose some friendships. You might damage that precious reputation of yours. But you need to say, I don't care. I don't care what the world thinks. I'm going to do what's right, which is the exact problem that Pilate had. He didn't have the courage to say, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what is right. You've got to have the courage to do that. You have to have the courage to speak up for God in your life. Because you live in a world where every day people are dying without Christ. You've got you have got to be diligent in sharing the gospel. People are going to think you're weird. They're not going to want to hear it. It's going to harm that reputation of yours. But Christ, who gave his life for you, has asked you to do this. And the only, the only right response you have is to obey, even if, even if it costs you your reputation. It might not be your reputation. You might need to sacrifice your time. You might have to sacrifice your time. Because Christ saved your soul from hell. And if he needs your Saturday morning, he needs your Tuesday evening, well, guess what? He should have it. You need to view your time as a gift and give it back to God. We use the phrase a lot around here, Adipat. You've heard it, right? Anything, any place, any what? Any time. And you need to see your church as a vehicle for you to do this. Because at Compass Bible Church, there's always somebody standing on stage asking you, begging you to help. There's always help that we need. We need help in Thrive, and we need help in Awana, and we need help in, I don't know, Fall Fest and in, and, in, and in Revival. And it's always that same small group of people that's sacrificing again and again and again. You've got to reset your priorities here. If God needs your time, if God's church needs your time, you need to adjust your schedule, and you need to joyfully give that time back to God. How about your quiet times? You should never be too busy to spend time in God's word each and every day. Or even in your marriage, always looking for opportunities as a husband to sacrifice for your wife. Or always looking for opportunities as a wife to respect and sacrifice for your husband. Using that precious free time that you have, whatever little bit you have, to practically serve your spouse. Doing something practical to show your love for God and for them. It's like tonight, I'm going to get home from Thrive tonight. My wife's going to get home first because she grabs the kids. She goes home. takes me a little longer to get out of here. By the time I get home, she will have the kids cleaned up, teeth brushed, Bible read, and in bed and asleep by the time I get home. 
That's amazing. Why does she do that? Right? Because she loves God who gave her so much. And she's happy to sacrifice just a little bit of her time for me and for him. That's a small thing, but it's a powerful thing. You got to sacrifice your time. And finally, you're going to be called, you're always called to sacrifice your money. Right? The world works so hard to get money. It's in love with money and stuff, always chasing the next thing. But you know the problem with this, right? A hundred years from now, none of this is going to matter. Whatever you're working so hard for right now, the house you've always wanted, the car, the vacation, the retirement, you know this in the long run, it means nothing. And instead, what you need to do is use your money and view your money as God intended it to be, a resource given to you by God to be used for him. That's why he gives it to you. God doesn't need your money. God owns everything. He gives you money so you have an opportunity to serve him with it. So you need to regularly be giving to your church. You need to regularly be generous with others. Well, what's your attitude with Compass 2020? That comes along and are you annoyed? Oh, here's another thing that I have to give. Or are you excited that God has given you another opportunity to give back to him, another opportunity for you to show your gratitude to him for all that he has given you, your reputation, your time, your money. You need to be willing to give all of that to God. It's the only rational response that you can have to Christ's great sacrifice for you. I mean, if you really get what's going on here, if you really understand that we were on the path to hell, we were guilty before God, we were without hope, and God sent his only son, his innocent, perfect son, to willingly sacrifice for you, and now you have eternal life? If you really got that, the only logical response you could have is amazing gratitude to him and then a willingness to live and to sacrifice for him. It's like that hymn that Pastor Mike closed with, this weekend, The Wonderful Cross by Isaac Watts. I have two verses to put on the screen here. It starts out by saying, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. This is exactly the topic we've been talking about tonight. My richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Nothing else matters. But then notice this verse. It says, We're the whole realm of nature mine. Let's just say I owned everything. I owned the whole earth. And let's just say I gave that entire thing. I offered the whole thing back to God. Guess what? That were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, so divine. Jesus sacrificed so much for us. What's our response? It demands, look at this line, it demands my soul and it demands my life and it demands my all. Out of love and gratitude for what God has done for you, the only logical response that you have is to give back to God everything. Don't hold anything back. Don't let a day go by without sacrificing to God. Why? Because God gave you his son, and there's absolutely nothing more that you need. Let's close in prayer. God, we just thank you for this amazing sacrifice that you have given us in your son. And it's something that particularly if we've, I know if we've been a Christian for a while, we can take it for granted and we cannot think about it and not appreciate it as much as we should. But the fact that the God, the creator of heaven and earth came to earth and was willing to die a horrible death so that I could live and have eternal life, that is something that I should never take for granted. That is something I should never 
get accustomed to it. And, and I should never cease to be amazed each and every day. And I just pray for everyone here tonight that we can be just motivated as a result of this passage to go out into our workplace, go out into our neighborhoods, go out into our communities, motivated and willing and energized to sacrifice for you because you have given us everything. And we are just so excited for you that we're willing and we're ready to give, out, give it all back to you. I just pray for a profitable time of small group tonight. Just help us to, to fully understand this passage and how we can live for you in our lives. Thanks again for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.